Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're glad to be in the house of the Lord. Aren't you glad you came to church already? I am. I'm glad I'm here. So um, it's good to have uh, some people that uh, have been out of the country, really. Good to have Hannah back with us, wherever Hannah went. Uh, there's Hannah. Um, back, she was up on stage from Germany. Amy Jacks is here somewhere. There's Amy. Good to have Amy from Jordan with us. So uh, great y'all are here today. Hey, congratulations to David and Rachel. They got engaged yesterday, so congrats to them. Anyway, it's part of being a, a church our size. We get the family life, right? We get to celebrate. And I, you know, I wasn't feeling very good last night, honestly. I've had a rough night. But then I looked over and Phil is here, who had his chest cracked open this week. And I was like, well, dang, if Phil can come to church, I, I don't feel like, uh, <laughs> I feel good about being here. <laughs> All right, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Micah. Turn to the book of Micah. We are looking at, this series is called The Untouchables. It's kind of a tricky title because these books are awesome books of the Bible, but we just usually don't hear about them very often. If you weren't here last week and you missed the sermon on Obadiah, it's my one and only. So you should get the copy of Obadiah from last week. Uh, Micah is a little more standard. It's got some great passages in it. Micah is a prophet who really has a mixture of messages where he's talking about gloom. He's talking about uh, the elements that are the judgment of God that is coming, that is really already come in some ways, because when he's uh, prophesying, there's one nation already going down, the nation of Israel, and uh, the other nation of Judah. I looked at a map last week, and some of you really like the maps, so I brought it back, uh, the map. Um, I feel like Dora, the map, the map. Uh, Anyway, uh, in the pink is the nation of Israel. Israel had the, the capital city of Samaria, which is a little tricky because when we start reading New Testament, we started thinking Samaritans and Samaria, and it does come from that term, but their capital city at this point was Samaria. And then you have the nation of Judah uh, in the south, which capital is Jerusalem. If you remember after Solomon's son becomes king, the nations divide. The ten tribes go to the north and form the nation of Israel. They have a string of really, really bad kings, almost no good kings, reigned over Israel. They were from different families, different lines. Uh, people like Ahab uh, were uh, kings in Israel. In the south, you had the descendants in Judah. You had the descendants of David uh, that all reigned for the entire time. And so, <coughs> excuse me, his descendants were a little more... There's more stability, but you still had a series of really good kings and really, really, really bad, wicked kings. Micah comes on the scene right when the Assyrian Empire is um, moving down to take over um, Israel and Judah. And the Assyrian Empire, by the way, if you study history very much, they don't get their due. They were really the first great conquering superpower. Countries like Babylon and Rome that are going to follow them, follow the model that was set by the Assyrians. Uh, I'm not saying the Assyrians were great people. They were brutal. They were idol worshipers. But some of the administrative governmental things like 
having all the roads. Whenever they conquered a place, they would build roads that came back to the capital. Rome follows that pattern. Their administrative uh, way of doing things, Babylon picked it up as well as, uh, as well as Rome. But one of the things the Assyrians would do is when they would conquer a nation, they would take the people, most of the people that were living in that nation, they would take them out, move them to another place they had conquered, and move another people they had conquered into that space. And that way they were able to keep control a little better of the nations. So when, when they come in, they are going to conquer the ten tribes to the north. They are going to totally annihilate those ten tribes. And they're going to take those ten tribes and they're going to move them out. And those ten tribes are going to become known as the lost tribes of Israel. And they're going to move some other people they've conquered in who are then going to intermingle and intermarry with the people that were living there. And hence you have the Samaritans that are going to come and you read about in the time of uh, Jesus. But the Samaritans are conquering, the Assyrians are conquering Israel somewhere around 725 B.C. So there, it, it is a prophetic word from God coming that they are going to be annihilated. Micah is a prophet from the southern portion of Judah, uh, the southern nation, and he's, he's an agricultural guy. He's from some little town that's not very significant. We don't really know much about him other than his name means who is like the Lord. And he, he prophesies to the nations of Judah and Israel, but probably right in the period when Israel is actually being decimated, when it's being destroyed. Now, the Assyrians, they don't... Um, they don't really, they're not going to stop with the northern nation of Israel. They, they want to conquer Judah as well. And so what's been happening, and you can read all about this in 2 Kings, by the way. Uh, one of the kings, Hezekiah, uh, if you read the opening lines of the book of Micah, there are different kings that he mentions, one of whom is Hezekiah, that he's living during the time of. And so he's prophesying and one of the stories, for instance, about Hezekiah is um, he's been paying tribute to the Assyrians. I mean, like stripping the gold off the temple doors in order to pay what the Assyrians are demanding. And he, he just runs out of money. He runs out of resources after a while, so he can't pay what they're demanding. So uh, an Assyrian king, Sennacherib, he comes down and he, he surrounds the city of Jerusalem and he's He's going to destroy it. And, and one, it's one of the funniest accounts in the Bible to me, really. It's a, I say funny. It's tragic and funny. The, the king, King Sennacherib's spokesman, goes to the gate and starts yelling all these insults. Um, I think it's where Monty Python and the Holy Grail got those insults. You know, the French guys yelling down at the English guys. I don't recommend movies. Don't even go see that one. <laughs> pretty funny scene though. And so they're yelling insults up and the guys on the wall are saying, hey, could you speak to us in Aramaic? Uh, we don't want the people behind the walls to hear what you're saying in Hebrew. And the guy on the floor says, no, you Hebrew dogs, we're going to talk to you in Hebrew so that everybody knows that we can take you anytime we want. Hezekiah, he just rips his clothes. He weeps. He's actually a pretty decent king. He's tried to turn the nation back to the Lord at this point. He calls on the prophet Isaiah, who is a contemporary of Micah's. And Isaiah says, hey, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of everything. 
Except it's typical Isaiah. It doesn't, he doesn't say it in like five words. He says it like in a chapter uh, of uh, God's going to take care. And that night, the angel of the Lord comes in and 185,000 of the Assyrian troops are killed. The next morning, they go from despair to, wow, God has delivered us. Except the message doesn't really stick. The message doesn't really stick because what happens with them is their pride gets in the way and says, look, nothing bad can happen to us. Look at this, what happened. So it's Hezekiah, even though he's, he's turning the hearts toward, the, toward God, but in desperation he cries out to God and God delivers him, the people's hearts are really not turned back to God. And you'll see this in that by the time Hezekiah dies, his son comes in. It's a great story too, but he's a horrible kid. Terrible. So bad that, that God says, I'm going to wipe out this nation because of this one guy. He's that wicked a king. And there are other good kings that come along. Josiah is another good king. But, but Micah is thrust into this situation where the nation of Israel, because of its wickedness and idol worship and all that's taken place, they're falling. The nation of Judah is going to last for about another 140 years before the Babylonians come in and take them captive. But the descendants of David will, will be around, and uh, you know those tribes will be around. Though when they fall after Babylon, not another king is going to come in. So that's the scenario we have with Micah. And Micah's seven chapters read about this gloom and glory that I was talking about. And it, it gets so intertwined at times, you're not sure what he's talking about. You're not sure which nation he's necessarily referring to. We're not sure of some of the glory. But some of the strongest prophetic passages about the Messiah are found in this short little book of, of Micah. So let's look at it together and just see some of the truths that I believe Micah would want to communicate to even us today. Now, again, when we read these minor prophets, we're going to look at it at the level that they're, that they're talking about to the nation there. But let's look at the eternal aspects of it as well, because that's part of what Micah's doing. He's not just prophesying to the nation for that moment, though he is. He's prophesying about eternity. So let's look at it together. First is the penalty of sin. The pen, this is the gloom part. The penalty of sin. I'm going to start in Micah 1, and I'm going to read uh, verses 3 through 7, and then I'm going to skip, go, skip over to Micah 5. But first look at verses 3 through 7. He says this, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? By the way, those are not good responses. He's saying things are not going good here. Things are not going well. And he's going to go on and says, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards, I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken in pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. 
When, in this case, when he says the Lord is coming down, this is not a good thing. You know, we, we see the Lord coming to, to, to bring salvation. This is the Lord coming to bring judgment. The penalty for their sin. It's been accumulating their idol worship and everything that's taken place. And God is pronouncing a judgment on Samaria to say, on, on Israel, the northern nation, to say, I'm going to wipe it out. They've been wicked for way too long. They never come back to me. They keep turning to idols. I'm going to destroy her. Micah 5 refers to both Israel and Judah when he says, In that day I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. He, he is prophesying here that, that there is coming a time when the wage of sin, the penalty of sin is going to be collected. God has looked past it for too long. He's kept calling him back in his mercy and his grace. He's brought times where he's, he's brought others that, that have persecuted them with the hope they turn back to the Lord, like when the Assyrian army came in. And here they have this opportunity. I mean, revival should have broken out. I mean, 185,000 Assyrians were killed at the gates, and it's the greatest empire the world has seen up until this point. And instead of turning back to God, they start to take pride in themselves. Read about the rest of the life of Hezekiah, and you'll read about a king who starts off really good, gets, uh, has this incredible encounter where God delivers them. God sends Isaiah to tell him that he's going to die. He, he pleads to God. God spares his life for a period of time. And honestly, if you read what Hezekiah does in the time that God gives him back, he should have died. It's that simple. And rather than turning to God and saying, God, thank you for these days. He wrecks the nation. He wrecks his life. There's a penalty coming for sin. And he, he, he is, Micah, in these passages, he's talking about how the rich are preying upon the poor. And that goes against the, the call of God for them as a nation. They're to be a nation that upholds his name and, and reaches out in grace and mercy to the nations around. They're, they're involved in witchcraft and spells. They, they've, they've blended idolatry, I can't even say, idolatry with syncretism. You'd think idolatry would be easier to say than syncretism. Syncretism is this blending of, hey, let's take, let's take the religion that was in this land and let's mix it with our religion and we'll come up with this blend of things that makes everybody happy. By the way, that is not a good thing. I could stop here and pause and preach on, for a minute, on how we're a syncretic society. I mean, we've blended any number of things with the truth of God, the Word of God. We have our own idols, money, name, prestige, patriotism. That was a little personal for some. But yeah, I could just go down the list of things that we've made a part of the Christian experience of worship 
and try to, to refine it, to say, this is what God wants. No, God wants something totally different. He wants the truth that he is God and God alone. And without mixture. And the penalty for that is continually this judgment of God to come back and say, I'm going to straighten this out. So God sends Micah into the middle of this to, to try and call the nation back. But the nation, like any people who, who are confronted with their sin, they don't, they don't want to hear it. It's really a shock to their system. Remember the story of David? I won't go into I know that those of you raised in the church, you know the story of David. When he should have been out battling, he's at home, up on a rooftop, sees a woman taking a bath, decides he wants her, takes her. She gets pregnant, has her husband killed in battle, and then goes on with life like nothing ever happened. He takes her as his wife, and then he just kind of goes back to being king. Hey, things are fine. Nobody, nobody the wiser. Prophet named Nathan comes in, tells him this story about a guy who had one precious little sheep, and a guy with a bunch of sheep steals the precious little sheep and kills the shepherd, and David is outraged. <laughs> you know, he's like, well, that's terrible. Listen, I'm going to get that guy. And Nathan says, you're the guy. You're the guy. I mean, David was so blind to his own sin that even in the story, he didn't see himself until it was pointed out to him. We're like, how could he not see this whole setup? Seems like that story seems a little obvious, doesn't it? But that's the way sin is. It blinds us. Especially when we start talking about our sin. Now, we're really good at seeing other people's sin. But we're a little, it's a little tough for us to see our own. And it's a shock to our system every time that we do. And Micah is bringing this message, hoping that the people will repent, but prophesying in such a way that it does not look like they will. But Micah, the way Micah frames this, by the way, he doesn't celebrate. God's going to get you. He's going to take you down. He's going to destroy this nation. He's mourning in the middle of this. There's a story told about um, these two. One's a hymn writer, one's a preacher, Horatio, Horatius and Andrew Bonar. Uh, both were preachers, and they were a friend of uh, Robert Murray McShane, who's a great preacher and writer. And one day, uh, McShane was talking to Andrew and asked him what he'd been preaching about. And Andrew replied, well, I've been preaching on hell, the reality of it, the gravity of it, the coming judgment of God upon the wicked. To which McShane pauses and asks in response and says this, Ah, oh, yes, but did you preach it in tears? Did you preach it weeping? Does your heart break when you consider the danger to which those who will not bend their knees to Jesus expose themselves? Too often the message of hell that we've preached over the years as a church comes across as we are so happy we're not going there, but you are, and that's fine. Trying to scare people out of it, rather than a brokenness over this penalty of sin. And that's, what, that's really what Micah is doing. He's trying to preach this reality that's coming, but he's doing it in a way in which he's mourning and not celebrating. 
There's a penalty, a wage for sin, and it's death and judgment. But Micah comes back with the glory part, which he talks about the promise of God. The promise of God. Last week, there was an earthquake, a couple of earthquakes, actually, in California. There was one that um, measured 6.4 magnitude, and another one that followed the next day, 7.1. It was about 10 miles outside of a small town called Ridgecrest, California, which is about 10 miles away, and it's a town of about 30,000 people. And, you know, you look at the numbers, and you look at it like, oh, 6.4 to 7.1, doesn't seem like that big a deal. I mean, it's like, what is that, 0.7? Is my math right? Somebody help me. Uh, 7.4, 0.7 difference. But the difference is the second earthquake, the one that was 7.1, was 11 times stronger than the one that's 6.4. Those earthquakes, they don't... They just keep, it's an exponential growth in magnitude. As a matter of fact, they said the one that was 7.1 measured, it released 40 times more energy, 45 times more energy than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Our minds can't even get around that kind of energy released. But I want to say this, the seismic move on humanity when Jesus was born There is nothing comparable. And Micah is going to prophesy of it over 700 years before it happens. And as a matter of fact, some people read Micah 5, and it is so incredibly precise that they're like, this had to be written. This had to be written when Jesus... I mean, there's some debate over the authorship of Micah because his his prophetic words are so accurate. Micah 5, verses 2 through 5, he says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. The promise of God is that a Messiah is going to come. Do you know the Jews, uh, even the Jews of Jesus' day, they so recognize this passage that when the wise men show up, they're looking for the Messiah, and Herod asked his wise men, where, where, where's, where's this birth going to take place? And they all knew it was going to be Bethlehem. I mean, they, it was a given. Oh, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. When Jesus comes ministering in John, people say, where is he from? And they say, Nazareth. And Well, the Messiah can't come from Nazareth. He's got to come from Bethlehem. I mean, they knew these prophetic passages about, they recognized that this passage was about the coming of the, the Messiah. But besides the place of his birth, look at this passage. It says his origins are from ancient times, literally eternity. His origins are from eternity. Judah and Israel, it says, they're going to be without a king until the Messiah comes. And when he comes, he's going to be a different kind of king. He's going to be a shepherd king in the majesty or strength of God. His greatness will allow them to live in security. He will be their peace. 
Now, you can see how the nation of Israel, the Jews of Jesus' day, would have read this passage and said, oh, you know, when Jesus, when the Messiah comes, we're going to be, we're going to have peace, we're going to have security. I mean, they, they, they looked at it all politically. We're going to get delivered from Rome, we're going to have money, we're going to have peace, we're going to be number one again. And Jesus is saying, no, I've got something bigger for you than political or monetary security. I've got a kingship, a lordship that will never end. I've got a, I've got a kingdom that's going to come that's going to bring you the kind of peace that you never even knew you needed. I mean, we could focus on any of these things, but look at just the truth that Jesus is our peace. He's our peace because of his sacrifice. Who is he that condemns? In other words, who is he that brings no peace? Well, Jesus Christ died. More than that, who was raised to life, it is, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So he's saying, who is he that condemns? Well, no one can condemn because Jesus has brought us peace. And not only brought us peace by his sacrifice, but he's brought us peace and he's interceding for us. His grace that we sang about earlier brings us peace. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We receive the peace of God because we have the power of God that rests upon us. We have his promise for the future. Hebrews 13, 5, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I mean, all of these passages speak to the peace that Christ brings when he comes. Peace that goes beyond understanding. Peace that we can't manufacture on our own. All of these promises of God that Micah speaks of are fulfilled in the life of Christ. By the way, <coughs> excuse me, isn't it just incredible? Just in this, we're only looking at like six, seven verses here in Micah. I mean, what are the odds? that Jesus could have fulfilled just these, much less all of the others outside of the incredible providence and sovereignty and power of God. There's a promise. There's a penalty for our sin, but there's a promise that God is gonna, is, has brought someone who is greater than our sin. And when we receive him, we walk in his plans and his purpose. And that's really, Micah speaks of this as well, the purpose of God's people. In this relationship of peace and life, what is our purpose? Why, what are we supposed to be doing here? Micah comes back and says, look, it's not about religious activity. It's not about going to church. It's not about giving big dollars in the offering plate. It's fine if you want to do it. I'm not going to complain. But it's not what's going to bring you the true purpose of God in your life. Here's what Micah says. He says, uh, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? I mean, that's a bunch, right? He's saying, is this what God wants? Just lambs and oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What's God looking for? What are the... 
Here's the deal. We're going to talk about these things just for a second. Walk justly, love mercy, live humbly. But if I say to you, hey, here's what, here's what, here's what it means to be a Christian. Walk justly. I mean, love, what was it? Uh, act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly. Now go out and try and do that. Go give it your best shot. The truth is this, it becomes just another religious activity. And, by the way, you can't do it. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how disciplined you are. You're not going to be able to do it. What he's saying here is this, these are the fruits of a transformed heart. These flow out of, not into. Are you with me? He, he, he says the penalty of sin is this, judgment. The promise of God is a transformed life in a Messiah, Jesus. And the result that will come from that is this, what says is a requirement of God. Why is it a requirement? Because this is what the people of God whose hearts are given to him look like. He says that we should act justly to one another. The Hebrew word here means order or rule. It reflects the way God governs all things. Do you know God is not really a, he's not really a, he's not big on chaos. I mean, he's, it's not his thing. When he saw chaos, he spoke into it and brought order. Where God is, the rule of God is. Another way to say that is where God is, the kingdom of God is. He brings his rule, his order, and it's to act justly. We should be right in our dealings with others. Then there's kindness. The Hebrew word here is to show mercy or grace. Show mercy or grace. Listen, we need to love it. We need to love mercy, showing kindness to one another. I, man, one of the tragedies of our system as it works right now is we do not love mercy. If you look at the way people act toward one another, there's very little mercy being extended. That's why when a follower of Jesus Christ, I think, acts justly and loves mercy, it's so radically different than the world's model. We don't think of justice and mercy going together. But acting justly and loving mercy is what we are called, called to be and to walk humbly. How do we walk humbly? Well, we walk humbly because we realize this is all about his work in us. This you, you know, the thing about uh, walk, uh, acting justly and loving mercy is if you're not careful, you'll, you'll do it without humility. And that just becomes, again, religious activity, which is so unappealing to people. But if you do it with a heart of humility, not exalting yourself, but rather exalting the God who's at work within you, it will transform, it'll transform everything. Micah's saying to them, hey, your sacrifice, it's not going to help you. Just offering meaningless prayers, not going to help you. 
Writing a big fat check, not going to help you. Going to a small group, not going to help you. We're, I, I think all of those things in and of themselves, when they're combined with a people whose hearts are God's, those are good things. But when we do them in order to try and get God's approval, they are not. They are just religious activity, and God is not looking for that. He's looking for people whose hearts are completely his. His eyes roam to and fro throughout the whole earth so that when he lights on a heart that's his, he can strongly support them. Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... In other words, in light of the mercy... By the way, he spent 11 chapters talking about this. So when we jump into 12, don't, don't think it's just like one verse. He spent a lot of time in complicated theological discussion talking about the mercy of God and all its ramifications. And he says, in view of God's mercy, what are we to do? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What is God looking for? What is the purpose of God's people? Is it to build stuff? Nice chairs, great carpet, wonderful air conditioning, which I, I'm for. That's not God's ultimate purpose. All of this is just a tool to be used of God to show his mercy to a world that's dying. I mean, we, we're, we're here smack dab in the middle of a prosperous region of our state. What do we have to offer? We have, we have to offer justice and mercy and humility. Having a heart of worship before God. However God uses us to do that, we need to figure it out. Because it is our purpose. Here's the deal. I'm going to close with this illustration. <clears throat> In his book, um, The Vision and the Vow, uh, Pete Gregg tells a story about a distinguished art critic who is studying this exquisite painting by an Italian Renaissance painter by the name of Filippino Lippi. I don't know this guy. The artist, honestly, I, in, other than reading in this book, uh, I'm not really, I like Renaissance art, but I, my knowledge is limited on it. But he was, he was in London's National Cathedral gazing at this 15th century depiction of Mary holding the infant Jesus on her lap with the saints Dominic and Jerome kneeling nearby. That's Jerome in the, but this corner, and Dominic. Uh, over here. We're not going to talk about them. It's not really that important. But he's looking at the painting and he's criticizing the perspective of the painting. He's looking at the painting in this art gallery and he says, you know what? The hills don't look right. They look like they're about to fall off the painting. Mary's eyes aren't focused on any of the characters in the painting, even the baby Jesus that she's holding. The two saints they look awkward and uncomfortable. And uh, by the way, this critic, uh, Robert Cumming, was not the first one to criticize Lippi's painting for all these various reasons. 
um, they just said, this guy's a great artist. His, his coloring and other paintings are so wonderful, but this is a miss. This painting is not one of his better ones. And then Robert Cumming was doing some research, and he found out that this painting was painted uh, in order to go in a prayer chapel. And so he went back to the painting, and this distinguished art critic kneeled before the painting and looked up at the painting from a position of prayer, and everything in the painting came into perspective. Everything changed in the view. The mountains looked right, and Mary was now looking down at him. And uh, the, 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 the saints on either side were in their proper position. Uh, you see, the, the problem of a perspective was not in the painting. It was in the person observing the painting. Too often, we look at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And, and the challenge is not in the painting, but it's in our perspective of it. Micah brings us back to a place that says we need, to, we need to realize that there is a penalty for sin, but there's a promise of God that is greater than the penalty of our sin. And then there's a transformed life that will, will show to the world something radically different than what they're experiencing. Why? So that they too can receive the promise of God. God is making his appeal through us. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are representing him to the world. And we need to bring that promise of Micah out of the pages of this minor prophet to, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly in a society that so desperately, desperately needs it. And the only way to do that is in the perspective of the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Micah closes with these verses. He says, Who is a God like you? Now, this is at the end after he's talked about all this bad stuff that's going to happen. But the promise that's also going to happen and the, the purpose of God's people. And he says to God, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Who is a God like the God we serve? The answer that Micah is bringing is there is none. So come to him in life. Come to him through Jesus. Come to him and receive a transformed heart and life. Lord, we, we thank you for the words of Micah. And we just receive these, these words that at times seem to portray gloom, but really they're pointing us toward your glory. And God, we receive from you today the life that you have for us. I pray that, God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus as the one who rules their life and has forgiven their sins, that they will, Spirit of God, you will draw them to the name of Christ. Lord, I pray that we will all refocus and get the proper perspective
that the right perspective in view of God's mercy is to give ourselves as living sacrifices to you. This is our reasonable, this, this is the act of worship that makes sense. So God, refocus our vision to see the things that we should be seeing in a way that you would have us see them. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you and glory in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up an offering. If you would, there's a connection card in your bulletin or in the uh, seat back in front of you. If you would